We're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to read all the way to verse 33, the end of the chapter. And as one of our deacons, Bruce Cullen, reminded me today, because of the time change, I have an extra hour to preach today. Uh, So we're going to wring every last ounce of gospel truth from this passage. No. We'll try to do that within the spirit period of about 40 minutes or so. So not an hour. All right. John 16, starting in verse 16, we'll read to the end of the chapter. These are God's words. Jesus said, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while that you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full." I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God." I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed with the beauty and the truth which you have shown us in this scripture. Lord, we need Jesus. We need your spirit to enlighten our minds and set our hearts on fire that we might not be mere observers or or questioners of your word, but that we might become participants in the great story of redemption 
Lord, that great story that began with your death and resurrection and continues now and will continue until you come again in glory and power as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Until that day, strengthen us for the journey. Give us eyes that we might see and speak, Lord, for we, your servants, listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This year, instead of watching a scary movie for Halloween, uh, something like Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street or Scream or The Notebook, uh, Kate and I decided to watch a romantic comedy. Now, our favorite romantic comedy of all time is While You Were Sleeping, but that's really more of a Christmas movie, so we went with the next best thing, which is The Proposal, starring Sandra Bullock at the absolute height of her rom-com powers, Ryan Reynolds, Craig T. Nelson, Mary Steenburgen, the Scotty Pippen to Sandra Bullock's Michael Jordan, and Betty White who is by far the funniest person in the whole movie and steals every scene in which she appears. She is the best. I miss Betty White. In the movie, Sandra Bullock plays a tough-as-nails book editor, and Ryan Reynolds plays her long-suffering executive assistant. Everybody hates her, and she hates everybody, and it's a giant mess. Well, one day, she learns from the company attorney that she has overstayed her visa. And she's about to be deported back to Canada. Unless, and you probably didn't see this coming, she finds an American who she can marry and thereby get her American citizenship. Who will marry this terrible person? Well, Ryan Reynolds, of course. At first, he's not on board, and then after a little bit of blackmail, uh, he agrees, and they decide to get married on paper so that she can get her citizenship. Well, as you can probably guess, a funny thing happens as Ryan Reynolds brings Sandra Bullock back to meet his outrageously wealthy family in Alaska. What started off as immigration fraud blossoms into true love. Sandra Bullock falls in love with Ryan Reynolds and his family, and how could she not? His grandma is Betty White, and uh, his mom is uh, rom-com Hall of Famer Mary Steenburgen. Sandra Bullock never had a chance. Meanwhile, uh, Ryan Reynolds and his family fall in love with her, and they decide to get married for real. After a few zigs and zags, they find themselves back in their office in New York City. Ryan Reynolds proposes in front of everyone in the office. Hearts melt, uh, people swoon, and they all live happily ever after. In the end, love wins. And sorrow is turned into joy. Why do we love stories like this? Why do we love reversals? Why do we love happily ever afters? Why do we need the good guy to win in the end? Well, I get it. A lot of men don't like romantic comedies, but do you like action movies? Because my theory is that action movies are just romantic comedies for men. 
I mean, really, if you, if you take uh, broken hearts and replace them with fractured skulls, and you take Sandra Bullock and replace uh, her with uh, Keanu Reeves, you essentially have the John Wick franchise. It's essentially the same movie. There's a bad problem. They got to solve the problem. The good guy faces the bad guy. They solve the problem. And in the end, the sorrow turns into joy. Now, did you know that in addition to that being the overall main story of almost all great books and all great movies, it is the overall story of the Bible. As the great J.R.R. Tolkien observed, all good stories are based on the gospel story. As Sally Lloyd-Jones put it this way, there are lots of stories in the Bible. And you know the stories of Moses and King David and Daniel in the lion's den. All those great stories, the prophet Elijah and, and the prophets of Baal. But all those stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and has come to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. Jesus is like the missing piece in the puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. Let me give you a one-verse summary of the entire Bible. It's right here in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. That's the story of sin. That's the story of brokenness. That's the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. But the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That's the story of Jesus, the second Adam who fulfilled the law that Adam failed to fulfill and died on the cross in our place as a covenant breaker so that we might be reckoned as covenant keepers, as sons and daughters of the living God. If someone asks you what the Bible is about, that's the answer. Through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, our sorrow turns into joy. After darkness comes the light. After defeat comes the victory. We call this the great reversal or the great exchange. Jesus gets our sin and we receive his righteousness. He gets the sorrow and we get the joy. We are forgiven because he was forsaken. If you're hurting this morning, if it's been a rough week or even a rough year, if it feels like you're swimming and you're swimming and your head is just barely above the water and you just are trying to make it to the next day for whatever reason, know this. This is the promise of Jesus Christ. Your sorrow will turn into joy. That's our big theme this morning. Because of Jesus, our sorrow turns into joy. 
Now, Jesus says a lot in this passage, and again, we're not going to get to every little nook and cranny of what he says here, but let me summarize for you the main message of Jesus' teaching in this section of Scripture in one sentence. Here it is. Jesus died and rose again to give us invincible, everlasting, life-changing joy. Jesus died and rose again to give us invincible, everlasting, life-changing joy. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, you want to write something down, here's our outline. We're just going to unpack that one sentence, that one main idea, phrase by phrase, word by word, as we walk through the passage together. First, we'll see that Jesus, and ultimately only Jesus, can give us joy. Second, we'll see that the joy he gives is invincible. Third, we'll see that the joy he gives is everlasting. And fourth, we'll see that the joy he gives is life-changing. So Jesus gives us invincible, everlasting, life-changing joy. Joy that doesn't go away when the movie ends. Because the movie never ends. Are you ready? All right, let's take a closer look. The first thing we see here is that Jesus gives us joy. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, here's the background of that promise. At the beginning of the section, Jesus told his disciples in verse 16, A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, which is always 2020, we understand that Jesus is talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. In a little while, you won't see me because I'm going to be dead and buried in a tomb. And then you will see me again because I will rise from the dead. Now, before we go further, a quick question. Why can we trust Jesus when he tells us that our sorrow will turn into joy? Is this just wishful thinking? Is this a a cliche? It's always darkest before the dawn. Is this something that belongs in, in, a, in a quote book or one of those you know, office motivational posters you know, where we learn that teamwork makes the dream work or some such thing like this? Right? Is that what Jesus is doing here? Well, we can trust Jesus. We can count on this. Not because Jesus was wise. Not because Jesus was good. Though he was both of those things. But because Jesus correctly predicted his death and resurrection. When Jesus said that our sorrow will turn into joy, that wasn't a theory. It wasn't a wish. It wasn't a hope or a dream. It was a fact, and it is a fact, because the one speaking, Jesus, is the divine Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. The resurrection is proof that our sins are forgiven. It is proof that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is proof that we can trust him. It's proof that our sorrow will 
turn into joy. Now, it's also worth noting that this context, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, helps us frame our expectations about what Jesus is saying here. The joy that Jesus died and rose again to give us is supernatural joy. It's joy that comes from heaven. It's joy that we will not fully experience until we get to heaven. The promise that our sorrow will turn into joy is often true in this life, but it is always true in the life to come. For example, in this life, Job, you remember Job in the Old Testament, lost everything, lost his friends, lost his family, lost his health, lost his wealth, everything. Well, at the end of the story, Job gets everything that he lost back again and more. If you ever read the book Unbroken with uh, about Louis Zamperini, he was imprisoned in a, a prison camp in Japan, lost everything, was tortured, uh, eventually found uh, freedom, found Christ. He found joy again. His sorrow was turned into joy. He ran in the Olympics in Japan, carrying the torch past the very prison in which he was imprisoned. Incredible. I could give you example after example of people who have overcome incredible hardships by the grace of God. One of my favorite books is Let Justice Roll Down by John Perkins. If you've not read that book, read that book of all the hardship and all the sorrow that he endured in, in Mississippi. His brother was killed and he had, uh, was discriminated against. It's terrible. But in the end, his sorrow turned into joy. Now, with all of that said, sadly, it doesn't always work out like that. Because we live in a fallen world, a world that's marked by sin and death, sometimes some wounds never fully heal. I wish they all did, but they don't. Sometimes on this side of heaven are hurt never fully goes away. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament could stand in front of a fiery furnace and say, we believe that our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will still trust in him. They were not 100% sure that their sorrow would turn into joy in this life. But they were 100% sure that their sorrow would turn into joy in the life to come. Back to the story. Today, on this side of the, of the cross and the empty tomb, we know exactly what Jesus was saying. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. At first, you won't see me. Then you will. First, you'll have sorrow. And then you'll have joy. But the disciples didn't have the benefit of hindsight. They were hearing Jesus say these things in real time. And they were, understandably, a little bit confused. Verse 17, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were asking, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Sometimes 
even the best disciples don't know what Jesus is talking about. I've been there. Every Monday morning, I open my Bible to the next section in John's Gospel, and I think to myself, I don't know what Jesus is talking about. I'm sure many of you, after hearing me preach, say, I don't think he knows what Jesus is talking about. But again, I digress. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to to them, what a kindness. He knew they were asking, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He goes on to explain that the Christian life is a lot like giving birth. At first, there's sorrow, there's physical pain involved, but then the sorrow gives birth to joy. You're still in pain. After you give birth, the the pain does not instantly go away, or so I'm told. Uh, I've never gone through it myself. Uh, If I can express an opinion that was not controversial until five minutes ago, men don't have babies. And since men don't have babies, we are relegated to the role of uh, witness and observer. But in my observation, the sorrow gives birth to joy. Moments after giving birth, the joy of holding your newborn child in your arms overwhelms the pain of giving birth to that child. So it is with sorrow that we experience in this life and the joy that comes through Jesus. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Here's the point. Sometimes it takes me a little while to get there, but I always have a point. Jesus doesn't say your hearts might rejoice. He says your hearts will rejoice. He doesn't say, some of you will be filled with joy. We'll make you the greeters. He says, all of you will be filled with joy. Christians have sorrow sometimes. We grieve, we mourn. But if you are a Christian, sorrow is no longer your defining characteristic. Your defining characteristic is joy. That's true because God made us in his image. We are image bearers of the living God, and our God is a a God whose heart is filled with joy. In Zephaniah 3, verse 17, we read, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you ever think about God that way? As a rejoicing, joyful God. That's our God. The gospel itself, we are told, is good news of great joy. Luke 2.10 And the angel said to them, Fear not. 
I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The gospel is the good news that we do not get what we deserve. We get what Jesus deserved. We get joy and laughter and celebration and forgiveness and life everlasting through him. That's why the gospel is good news of great joy. Before joy is about where we are or what we have, it's about who we are in Christ. If joy is about where you are, you can lose your joy. If, if, you really, if your joy is centered on, here's where I live, and here's, you, could, you could move. If your joy is, hey man, I love this place, Disney World closes sometimes, and eventually you have to go home. Even the best parties end when the lights go on. If your joy is about what you have, well, you can lose your joy. As the saying goes, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Things break. Things get old. I'm 47. I speak from experience. I live it every day. I break. I get old. But if your joy is in Jesus, no one will take your joy from you. Psalm 16:11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 1 Peter 1:8, though you have not seen Jesus, we have not seen Jesus with our eyes, and yet we love him. Though we do not see him now, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the first thing we see. And it's an important thing. Jesus gives us joy. Second thing is this. The joy that he gives is invincible joy. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into this world. Now, I mentioned this already, so I will not belabor the point. Pun absolutely intended. But the analogy is helpful because it shows us that joy and sorrow can and often do overlap in the lives of God's people. Now, we tend to think of joy and sorrow as a binary. They're opposites. Therefore, if you're, you're either a sad person or you're a happy person, and therefore, if you're a Christian, you have to be happy all the time because Jesus said so. Now, first off, Jesus didn't say so. Second off, good luck with that. Jesus himself was called a man of sorrows. And so if we are to conform our lives to the image of Christ and think that somehow we can avoid the sorrows and not experience the sorrows, well, frankly, we're deluded. We're kidding ourselves. It's impossible. Now, again, that's a little bit of an aside, but I think that this is why we as Christians are sometimes uh, accused of being fake. 
You know, we feel like we have to act like we're super happy all the time because we assume that sorrow and joy can't coexist in the same person. According to Jesus, they can. And in fact, in the delivery room, they do. In a delivery room, you will see a woman who looks like she just got run over by an Amazon delivery truck. And yet, tears of joy are streaming down her face as she holds her son or or her daughter in her arms. Women, after they give birth, take a wheelchair down to the car because they're not yet sufficiently recovered. And yet, They're filled with great joy because of of the birth of their children. Again, I've seen it. Joy is invincible in the sense that joy and sorrow never always often overlap with one another. But there's a sense in which your sorrow cannot be defeated by your joy. Your sorrow cannot overwhelm your joy. Again, they can coexist But if you're a Christian, joy always gets the last word. Either in this life or in the life to come, joy wins because Jesus wins. And therefore, if you're tired, if you're weary, if you're brokenhearted, if you're mourning, look to Jesus. Look to the cross Look to his empty tomb. Remember that your pain is like labor pain. When you're in it, you feel every bit of it and every second of it. But then, in the blink of an eye, it's over. And joy is birthed within your heart by the power of the Spirit. And new life begins. That's the second thing. Our joy is invincible. The third thing we see is that the joy that Jesus gives is everlasting. Verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have any hope of life beyond this world, if you have no hope for the resurrection of your earthly body, then death can and will steal your joy. But if you do have hope in Jesus, if you you do have hope for life after death and life after life after death at the resurrection, then death cannot steal your joy because death cannot separate you from the love of Jesus. And Jesus is, remember, the ultimate source of our joy. This week, and I'll I'll try to not cry as I say this, we lost a a dear friend, Wayne Lovett. Wayne was my friend. I'd see him every Monday morning as the guys would come and do the bookkeeping from Sunday. Every time I'd see him, he'd say, How you doing, Rabbi? And when I heard that he, was, that he had died, that he had gone to be with the Lord, I thought to myself, who's going to call me rabbi now? Who am I going to talk to on Monday morning about Georgia Bulldogs football and politics and life and the war and all the stories that he would tell me, story after story? I miss him. It breaks my heart that he's gone. But I'm so glad 
that while Wayne did lose his life on earth, Wayne absolutely did not lose his joy. In fact, I think his joy is greater now than it ever was in his life on earth. I know that he is with Jesus right now and as happy as he was about the Georgia Bulldogs and their back-to-back national championships. Believe me, if you ever talked to Wayne, you'd hear about the Georgia Bulldogs, national champions. Nothing compared to the glory that he is experiencing at this very moment as he sees his Savior face to face. This is only a guess, but my guess is that Wayne is probably telling Jesus some stories. And because he's Jesus, Jesus is probably pretending that he never heard them before. (laughs) He's probably saying, when Wayne's all done, you know, Wayne, I was there when that happened, you remember. And I could see Wayne with a big old smile on his face, just rejoicing, because joy is everlasting. Our world says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Squeeze every ounce of joy out of this life, because it's all there is, and you'll never get another one. That's not true. God says that this life is just the beginning. Take the greatest joy that you have ever experienced in this life, multiply it by a thousand And you'll have the joy that we will experience in heaven when we see Jesus face to face. Then take that number and multiply it by a million. And you have the joy that we'll experience when we rise again from the dead in our physical, spiritual, resurrected bodies to see him and one another and Wayne and all that that have gone before us into death, when we see them again, we will be overwhelmed with joy that is, as Peter said, inexpressible and filled with glory. Our joy is everlasting. Not even death can take away our joy. Fourth thing we see, last one, is that the joy Jesus gives is life-changing joy. The joy that Jesus gives us changes our relationship with God. Verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name, Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. The gospel, the good news that we are forgiven because Jesus was forsaken on the cross, not only fills our hearts with great joy, it gives us great confidence to come to God in prayer. Imagine this scenario. All right, so you have a neighbor, your next-door neighbor, He is a mean neighbor. Whenever you see him, he scowls at you. Whenever you say hello, he doesn't say anything back. Your kids kick the ball over the fence. He keeps the ball. Not only does he keep the ball, he flattens the ball. And he throws it away where you can see it, where they uh, pick up the trash the next day. This may or may not happen to me in real life. How likely are you to talk to that person? How likely are you to avoid that person when you see him? To quickly pull in the, in the garage, close the door behind you, behind you, so you don't even have to interact with this person. 
How likely are you to walk over to that neighbor's house, knock on the door, and say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling with something here. Could you give me some advice? And also, I could really use a hug. You think we can have a hug? Why don't you go ahead and put down that Miller High Life and just get in here, big guy. We'll give a big hug, you know, and we'll hug it out. Is that ever going to happen? How likely are we to pray if you believe that God is an angry, vengeful God who's just waiting for you to screw up something so that he can inflict his wrath upon you? How likely are you to confess your sins to a God like that? How likely are you to repent and believe? How likely are you to confess your sins to a God if you're not totally sure if that God will ever forgive you? Probably the answer to all of the above is not very likely at all. But here's the thing. The God that we know through Jesus in the Spirit isn't a God like that. God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to die on the cross for us. He rose again in victory over sin and death and hell forever. It is finished. And so if you go to him now in faith, through Jesus, through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will forgive your sins, he will restore you, he will adopt you into his family, the family of God. Just as God in the Old Testament is said to rejoice over his people with singing, he will rejoice over you. That changes the way we pray. It makes a relationship with God not only possible, but desirable. If you're not praying that way, or if you're not praying at all, maybe your prayers are cold and formal and formulaic, maybe, just maybe, you're missing Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, you're missing the joy that comes through faith in him. Once Jesus turns our sorrows into joys, it totally transforms the way we pray. We pray like we've never prayed before. It's life-changing. The joys that Jesus gives us also changes our relationship with other people. Verse 33 I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if you've been with us at all during the Upper Room Discourse, you know this has been a repeated theme of Jesus' teaching. He says, in this world you will have trouble, in this world you will have conflict. Sadly, that is true. Conflict is caused by sin, and all of us have sinned and do sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so as a result of this, we have strife, we have enmity, we have disagreements, despair, destruction. It's a mess. But Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. That means that we can lay down our arms We can lay down our weapons of war. You only have to fight until the enemy is defeated. The enemies of God have been defeated. And therefore, we are free to love them. We are free to serve them. We are free to welcome them into the family of God. The gospel is the good news that God doesn't just defeat his enemies. 
He adopts his enemies into his family. He turns friends, he turns enemies into friends and friends into children in one long, unbroken string of redemption and grace. That is the power of life-changing joy. It'll totally transform your life in relationship with God and in your relationships with other people. Jesus died and rose again to give us invincible, everlasting, life-changing joy. Do you have that? Come to him in faith, whether it's for the very first time or for the hundred and first time. Confess your sins, repent, turn to him in faith, believe, and begin a new life with him. He will turn your sorrow into joy. Maybe in this life, definitely in the life to come. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Jesus, you have turned our sorrow into joy. Lord, we know that in this life, we will and do have trouble. But I pray, Lord, that you would remind us that you have conquered the world. Not through judgment or violence, but through grace and peace. I pray, Lord, that the joy of your Spirit would fill our hearts today and every day. That our family and friends and our loved ones, that this community would see in us the joy of Christ and be drawn to you, that they might experience it too. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.